Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode. I have a few quick announcements before we get started. I'm running another webinar this month, Reconnect to Your Body Through Dance and Movement. So if you missed last month's webinar, you can join this time. If you came to last month's webinar, come again because you'll you'll probably learn something new about yourself and gain new insight. So this webinar is great for you if you feel like your body's letting you down or you want to dance and move more, but you're having a really hard time getting started. There's some obstacles in the way. At the end of the webinar, which is about 60 minutes, you'll have a much better idea in your mind and in your body how to trust your inner guide and feel more confident being visible and also identify where and why self-sabotage happens for you. I will be there live to guide you through the movement explorations that we're doing And I'll help you answer questions that you might have at the end. And I always have a special offer as well. So come join if you sign up. I'm going to be sending a share challenge as it gets closer to the webinar. And you can have a chance to win a free session with me. So um, I will paste that link in the top of the episode notes so that you can easily find it and sign up. Even if you can't make it live on July 24th, if you sign up, you'll get the recording and you'll also get access to the special offer. So either way, if you're interested, click on the link and sign up. And it's almost our 50th episode anniversary. Not sure if you noticed, but this is episode 48 and I'm so excited that we're coming up on 50 that I'm going to be doing a really special offer that's available for only 50 hours. So this will be posted on my Facebook page. It'll be posted on the website on mindyourbodydmt.com. And I'll also offer it here on the podcast. So when you see the 50th episode come out, make sure that you listen to at least the beginning if you want to have a chance to get in on the offer. Okay, so today on the podcast, we have Eileen Serlin, who is a dance movement therapist And she will be talking about her work in several different countries where she focuses on doing dance movement therapy with people who are struggling with intergenerational trauma. There's so much great information about how dance is this one common thread that no matter where Eileen has traveled to, she has seen it really help people express themselves and have this freedom to talk about things that are so not in their culture or they're so not accustomed to. So um, we're going to hear from Eileen and her work in Israel, Jordan, China, and Turkey. Here we go. This is Mind Your Body, a dance movement therapy perspective on the integration of our emotional, cognitive, physical, and spiritual aspects of our being into one more aware and whole existence. Hi, my name is Eileen Serlin. I am a dance therapist and I'm a psychologist. As part of being a dance therapist, I was in, I believe, the, well, I was in the first class of Hunter College in 1971. Before that, I was actually at NYU in 1971. They were just starting a dance therapy program. Then Hunter got started, and some of us went over and did Hunter's program then. So it's been a long time. Graduated in 73, 
I did my internship at the Bronx State Hospital. All very valuable, very valuable experiences. I worked at Queens Children's Hospital with children, then at South Beach Psychiatric Center. So my background, like most of us in those days, was in psychiatric hospitals. Then I went for training at the Gestalt Institute in New York. My, my teacher, my mentor, my friend was Laura Pearls, Fritz Pearls' wife. Um, so I would say I have a kind of, from a long time, a kind of an existential humanistic gestalt background. Um, I did go for my PhD in psychology in 1978 to the University of Dallas, where uh, it was phenomenological, so philosophical psychology. James Hillman had just arrived from Zurich, so we got a big dose of Jungian analysis, and then I was in Jungian analysis myself for 15 years or so, starting then. I did my pre-doc internship at the Jung Institute in Los Angeles. So my background has been kind of a mix of combining existential, humanistic, gestalt approaches, what I consider more here and now embodied approaches of psychology, with the symbolism, the depth, the cultural relevance of and the spirituality of Jung, um, bringing in the dance therapy. So it's really been an integration ever since then. And I, I feel like I have a foot solidly in both those worlds, at the ADTA and at APA, always trying to bridge the two worlds and the two communities I'm involved in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. And you've been recently doing work with intergenerational trauma around different countries, right? Right, 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 right. A word to say about that first is my background in dance was really folk dance. So uh, actually I say this, I, I think maybe you're Israeli, but it started in Israel in 1961 or so. I'm the same age as Israel. So I went and I became a young Zionist. I loved Israel and Israeli folk dance was a big part of creating a country. I actually, um, years later, had the experience of talking to some of the ethnographers who were part of the founding of Israel. And they knew that a new country needed to be cohesive. Songs and dances and spirit to really bring up the spirit of, you know, can do and work in the fields. And that, I fell in love with that. So it's all ironic now because I studied, I was in Habonim. So we were the builders and we were going to build a perfect democracy, dancing and singing our way in the fields to study with Fred Burke at the 92nd Street Y. So he pretty single-handedly brought Israeli folk dance to this country. And so in Habonim, I was the group leader, and we did our little um, choreographies and folk dance. That, I think, prepared me because that turned into international folk dance. So I've traveled a lot. I spent the summer working as a dance therapist in Sweden, for example, in 1976, and do the hambo, which is a kind of a couple's dance. They do at a folk fest up in a barn in the north of Sweden. So as I've traveled around, it just reinforces my clear feeling that dance is a universal language, that we can go into other countries and also show respect by knowing their music and dance um, and not trying to bring our vocabulary to them. So that's a preliminary to talk about going to Jordan uh, three years ago. I was so struck, I guess, as so many of us were, by the Syrian refugees. There was a terrible photo of a little boy who was dazed from the bombing in the back of a truck, kind of bloody and 
uh, a small boy and uh, you know wondered like so many of us what can I do to help I have a friend and longtime colleague humanistic psychologist who um, had been leading lots of conflict resolution trips um, and I did this by the way also not with him but with another group in Moscow in Russia in 1990 and then after the curtain fell in 1991 also using movement um, there's an article about that in the dance therapy journal a long time ago uh, so this was a chance I went there first I think three years ago to Jordan to work with Steve Olween and his crew um, it's all volunteer, and he's all volunteer. He, he holds a yearly conference in Amman, Jordan, where the bulk of the Syrian refugees had landed. So this was, when I went three years ago, um, these were really religious women. Most of them were widows, and uh, they were with their children who were orphans. Their husbands were either fighting still in the army, or they'd lost their husbands, or some of them were already in Germany in refugee camps, the families were separated. So the first group that I did was in uh, what they called the women's building. Uh, and at that, there were some challenges. One is these are really religious women. And later on, some of them told us that they have problems with music that's not religious music. So there were all those you know, cultural issues. But the intergenerational trauma was um, right away, some of them told us that they were not so worried about themselves at this point. They were already kind of given up on the fact that they were going to have a life. I'm thinking about like a 30-something-year-old who was worried about their kids. Their whole focus is on the kids, that the kids should be stabilized, and they wanted them desperately to learn English and computer skills and have a future. So um, actually, let me go back a minute to Israel because uh, somehow I forgot to talk about that. That started my interest in trauma, in intergenerational trauma, actually. I was there in 86. I was teaching for Leslie University at the time, and they have a campus in Netanya. Um, and it was very powerful for me to go back to Israel after so many years. And I remember doing a movement group. We were in the north in a very beautiful dance studio. And I did something warm-up, something, not, and one of the women ran screaming out of the room. And the others said, do you know who she is? So she got triggered. I didn't know who she was. And she was famous in Israel. She's the one who, during a terrorist attack, I think her husband and one child were killed. Um, she was indoors with her daughter, and she had her hand over the daughter's mouth so tightly to keep her from screaming that she ended up suffocating her own daughter. And this was that woman. So that was the first time I realized kind of how everybody in Israel is living with trauma. Yeah. Um, coming from a family in the States that we were not involved in the military, my father um, had a deferment from World War II, and where I came from, everybody could go to school, graduate school or avoid the draft pretty much. I, I really have been sheltered from military things and thought that trauma work was something only, um, you know, very few people were involved in, or you know, it had to be in the military. Of course, in Israel, everybody's in the military, and everybody's affected. I was there in 2006 during the one of the intifadas. We got evicted, the staff from Leslie that summer, but that was the year they released not uh, Shalit, but two soldiers. And so many of the women in the group were crying 
because they kept trying to explain to me that, and everybody's affected by trauma, even if it's not your child. So I began to think trauma really does affect all of us, and it's something I can get involved in. It's not just for a certain select group of people. And so in Israel, I started to focus on the trauma aspects of the work. And then I have been dealing with it in many other countries, just seeing how it's very heartbreaking for me now. I mean, it seems like the whole world is at a crisis, and whether it's trauma of wars or trauma of you know, dislocation, people migrating and homeless and loss of their culture and loss of their faith and loss of um, struggling with raising children and trying to create a stable culture, family life. So that's why lately I've been focusing on trauma, just as a feeling that that's the least I can do. Um, Your story from your work in Israel sounds really, it's really heartbreaking and I can't even imagine what that woman is going through. So I'm wondering, before we get into that a little bit more and the work that you've done in other countries as well, could you give a little bit of a background about what intergenerational trauma means? I think in brief, it's just that trauma affects all the generations. And if you try to, this is a quote, you know, stop cycle of violence, it gets carried down through the generations. I think nobody really knows whether it's it's in nature or nurture, you know, it's in for example, one of the women in Jordan um, was so anxious, she was sitting with me just shaking, and her complaint was not about her, it was that she's lashing out at her children when they bug her. She's lost her patience, she's communicating her anxieties, her fears to the children, and even aggressive, she's kind of hitting them and lashing out, and she wants to learn relaxation skills not so much for her, but so she doesn't pass it on to the children. So there's one way it's all passed on to the children and just the anxiety and fears of the parents gets passed down. And the other ways, uh, three ways, you know, the ways, of course, what they see, you know, so many of the Sudanese child soldiers and young people have seen horrible things happen around them. Um, So they will be traumatized. And the third way may be genetic. I mean, we don't yet know what's carried in the genes. We talk about, um, you know, cycles of alcoholism, addiction that are carried biologically, too. And, be, and you know, the trauma affects the brain and the way DNA is expressed. And it may well affect, you know, the children. Right. So in all those ways, it gets passed down. And... Sometimes the most effective, the most important thing you can do is try what we call break the cycle of violence. So if you can interrupt the cycle, then it it stops it from being continuously passed down. I'm really interested in hearing some of these stories about what about the work that you're doing with in the different countries and who are you working with and in what capacity are you are you doing dance therapy groups with them? Um, do you see them once? Do you um, work with them for a short period of time or long time? So, like, what's can you paint a picture for us? Yeah. Um, and by the way, I, I have a student from Istanbul who's working with Syrian refugees there, dance therapy students. So, oh, yeah, we wow. have to hopefully have a lot of interesting submissions on that. And, and one of the things I think, or I make a case for, is that the creative arts therapists are good at improvisation. So the point is. 
there really are no structures in place. You have to invent all the time what's possible. Um, in Jordan, we would, like one time we were supposed to be at the women's house, at the women's shelter. The staff we were working with supposedly called ahead of time and got everything set up. We arrived here, which was an hour's ride outside the city in a dusty old you know, van. We get there and they have no idea we're coming. And all the women are out. They're not even available. So we have to, um, some of the children are around. We, you know, we sort of improvise some groups with the children until the women came back. And because it's so difficult to pull a group together, and also what we learned is that these women, these very religious women who are all covered with burqas, are, well, you know, they're not used to therapy. One of the women, a young woman volunteer, created what she calls a women's safe space there. She got some rooms donated by a local organization, worked with the women. And while I was there the last year, we were decorating it and getting it set up to have what we're hoping will be weekly meetings of a women's support group in which there will be dance, among other activities, depending upon what they will and even the issue of stabilizing an ongoing group, you know, the women would say things. This is all through translators and some of the um, women medical students who are, you know, from Jordan, locals, speak Arabic and can be trusted by the, the refugee women. We always had intermediaries and, and interpreters trying to, you know, uh, respect their culture, um, told us that, the way the women talk is usually what they call gossiping over tea in the afternoon. And they have sort of prohibitions about either what they call uh, showing your weakness and vulnerability and like saving face or they don't, they don't want to tell too much bad news to each other or the same thing, too much good news because they understand that people will get jealous and compare themselves and all of that. So they're very careful about what they share. In there, so a women's support group where you talk directly about emotions is really not in their culture. Whereas they will do more psychoeducational things, like we had some groups on self care. One of the groups on self care that we had was, and and she's in the article that I'm writing, a um, a woman researcher from Germany who does body mind centering, and she did some really concrete self-care exercises with the women with those little rubber balls where you rub stress out of your arm and you can just work with your arms and hands it doesn't affect the rest of the body which is more threatening and that that they liked that they would do so we're experimenting about when you talk about you know what do i do do we do a regular group there and all that there's of course the ideal and then there's the real which is you work with whatever you can we tried to stabilize identified three local women a medical student and then two of her friends who love dance i did a training session with them that they would take over the group and uh, rotate in and keep it going every week and they haven't been able to they have all sorts of things come up with their busy schedules and this and this. So even our Western idea of regular groups and mm -hmm. regular meetings is not what they're used to. So it's been hard to. And then we're trying to train the trainers. So I'm still working with these women. Now we've got some video cameras in the women's apartment so that we can try to do some supervision, videotape the group. 
we tried to bring in a film crew to do that. And of course, uh, these were two men. So they, you know, and the women did not want to be videotaped by a woman. Um, so in order to set up training or train the trainers, we want to videotape something. We want to. So we're hoping that now that there's some video cameras available, we can do some training of the trainers. Oh, that's so interesting. So they haven't necessarily gotten into what we know as a typical dance therapy, chasing circle kind of group. Actually, I was able to do one. Not last year, the year before. Last year, for some reason, um, we had mostly older women. And they were uh, sort of worried about moving. Whereas the younger ones, the year before, they took off their burkas and they had cell phones. And they put on belly dance music and we danced and we had... It really went on for the whole practically hour. So I'm hoping that we can continue that. It's, it, you know, it, it, it looks like it depends on who's going to be in the circle and what they're willing to do. Hmm. What are some themes that are commonly coming up for them? Great. And I'll tell you how we did this. Uh, and this was even with the older one. Uh, they don't talk, but first we did warm-ups. And then uh, we got a big rubber ball and just, you know, threw it down on the floor, like in the middle of a circle. And, then, and they would say something. Like I'd say, what are you hoping for? And they would say, I remember my house and my garden. Or, or you know, we used to eat eggplant and then I miss that. Or uh, I want to study English, their dreams. And, you know, what do you, what do you miss? What do you... So when we combined it, with some movement, they really did talk about what they were missing and what they hoped for. Why do you think that is? Well, as we always believe, is that when you mobilize somebody with movement, emo- you know, emotions come out, words come out more clearly. So they were able to talk about their needs instead of what you were talking about earlier, where they were more focused on their kids and kind of had this hopelessness about themselves. That's right. And so you've done some work in other countries too, right? Yes. Uh-huh. Can you talk about other examples and how they might be similar or have things in common with the work you've done? In uh, Turkey, I had a training program there for about five years or so. It's now moved into a university. Actually, I, I, I just haven't come back because I don't think it's safe enough. I'm waiting until I feel better about going back to Istanbul. But I worked there with, um, these were more, uh, you know, counselors and people, mental health professionals who were interested in, in training. So they were not the refugees. But the, the, uh, the time I was there, there were, there was number one political things going on. Um, some of this, well, I call them students. They were caught in, um, Taksim Square. We're caught in the political demonstrations and uh, also had been through the earthquake. So there was, you know, natural and man-made disasters that we were working with. And there we did a whole, the group process that I use is kind of existential humanistic, and I call it existential depth approaches to dance therapy. It, it, it starts often with a chase circle has a lot of elements. We work with existential themes like death and dying or being alone versus being in the community. This kind of very basic freedom versus fate. Um, and then the students would do improvisations around these themes. And they really, 
the, the, the one about death and rebirth or death and dying, um, they spoke a lot about the earthquake. They did a whole improvisation with candles and wearing black, and that was in Istanbul, doing a very kind of, with trainees there. They had just been through trauma, and they were learning how to work with trauma, oh, okay. but they, they were like the refugees themselves. Hmm. I'm asking myself as you're talking about this, how does this affect you? Because this sounds like such hard work, so intense. I think I actually thrive on it. Oh, good. Um, it just feels very real at a time like that. And, and even, or especially, if you're not in a hospital or a clinic setting, you're really in the field where people are experiencing something. It's very immediate. And, and I find very kind of exciting work. Oh, good. I mean, we need people like you who can tolerate that because, you know, I'm I'm listening to this and it's heartbreaking and I, I, it's, it's a little, it would be a little too much for me, but I'm so glad to hear that it, you thrive on it. And the cultural differences, I, I continue in Jordan. So it's, I like the um, challenge of improvising and finding ways to bring movement into a situation that's not necessarily just a chase dance circle or something. So for example, I've been experimenting with movement choirs and I, I was in Ermgard's 1975 uh, introduction when she brought movement choirs back to the ADTA. A group of us were studying with her at the bureau at that time and we became her kind of little seed group. And so modified movement choirs, um, I've been doing that to open conferences, you know, things that are like the APA. What is that? Uh, what does that look like? Well, a movement choir, Rudolf von Laban, invented in Europe in the early 1900s, a form called movement choir. So you're working with time, weight, space, and flow. And then there's a, with Ermgard, she called it space harmonics. You know, like lightness tends to go up, strength tends to go down. So you repeat these gestures or these movements over and over like a, a chord, like a music chord. And everybody does that. You get overtones. And it's a way of bringing groups together. So I, when I was working with the cancer patients, I invented a very simple form of it that we used to close our circles, our meetings, and uh, it's become kind of a prayer closure for a lot of things I do. Just up to the heaven, down to the earth, into community, back to the heart. And we do this over and over. And, 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 and I brought in um, Jody Wagner to do this American Psychological Association a couple of years ago in Washington. There are about 13,000 people participating. And I worked with Jody and some of the others. We created a movement choir to open the conference. APA had a gospel choir, and we used their singing, and we did a movement to it. Uh, that was a wonderful way to energize the conference instead of sitting in chairs like we usually do. So I look for ways, and again, this is dance therapy, but it's more the community-based aspect of it. Um, in Jordan, I found out that the medical students, um, when they have their conferences, medical conferences, they do something called the Hakka, which when I Googled it is what the Maori warriors do to psych themselves up for war. They do this very 
ferocious with the painted faces and the, you know, one, two, one, two, one, two. And that also looks a little like Chase. Somebody's in the center of the circle leading the movements and everybody follows. And so we invented a, uh, a modified form of that, that we started the conference in Jordan. Mm. And then we ended with, this is really folk dancing too, if you know, it's the Depka, which the, mostly the Arabic men do. It's a line dance. Mm-hmm. And so we ended with a depka, where for our closing banquet, all the volunteers, everybody who was at that meal, ended with a circle dance on the tables. So for me, this is all therapeutic use of movement, you know, and it adapts to, it uses the local folk culture, and it partners with the local people. So I try very much not to be an outsider and bring in something foreign to them, but partner with them and see what works and then build on it so they can continue on their own. Right. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, how would you recommend that someone else get into this kind of work if they're feeling called to it? What's the best approach to collaborate and get connected to institutions in other countries or? Mm -hmm. One thing is I'm planning to offer a training program and take some of those students with me to Jordan. So I've already taken two years worth of graduate students with me to Jordan. Uh, and this year I'm taking a student from China, a man who's a martial arts expert, and he's going to work with the boys there. So, you know, that's one thing. Um, and I think the training in dance therapy is like any kind of trauma training, which from my point of view is, you know, you have to be very careful not to re-trigger and build on strengths and resiliency, you know, and then as you carefully go maybe into the difficult emotions. So there's that. You know, as far as dance therapists working independently, I found an an NGO to work with where I liked the work they were doing. Um, And I think that's, you know, it, it boils down to relationships, the, this organization, I like it because it's so um, so much not about money. <laughs> they uh, it's really very grassroots and uh, it's very heartfelt, um, and everybody pays their own way to do it. So that's why I like working with them. They're, you know, their feeling is a lot of money is getting thrown at the top-down organizations, and it's not getting to the people themselves. So this is a very much kind of on the ground, hands-on organization. So I found a place to do the work that I do. Just kind of researched around or heard about it? No, no, it's all coincidence. I was presenting at a conference on trauma at Stanford. Steve Olween, who leads this NGO, and whom I knew years ago, presented on his work in Jordan, and I said, can I come with you? That was it. (laughs) That's great. The next next year I did, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Is there anything else about your work that you want to talk about? China's interesting. Uh, so I teach there twice a year. I have a two-year training program that also started kind of coincidentally there. I was there with a group of existentialists and offered a movement group, and people loved it. And then the guy who's the director of this institute, China Institute for Psychology in Beijing, asked me to start a training program. So that was 2010, uh, and we've been training 
Great students ever since. They're just beginning to talk about trauma there. That's that's what's so interesting. That um, my interpreter there, who teaches at Beijing Normal University, her parents were professors there and got very caught up in the Cultural Revolution. So people are not talking about the trauma for that yet. But she, her father was imprisoned and I think died right as part of the Cultural Revolution. Uh, she never saw him again, and she's very, she's in her early 60s, you know, and she's very kind of embittered by it, but knows that kind of like with the Holocaust, it's usually the next generation that's willing to deal with the trauma. Her parents won't talk about it, the, or her mother, I guess, wasn't. Um, but she says now her generation wants to look at it. She also talks about the other traumas they've had, you know, the earthquake and one-child policy. So she's all about now trying to open up conversations about trauma and using, she's so happy with the movement work that she's getting herself trained in it too. So, and we're talking about starting something at the university there. She works with, um, uh, well, interpreters, teachers to work with trauma. So... I don't know, but it's it's about the readiness, you know, and it's exciting that this generation now, but you have to be very careful politically. I, I hardly dare talk about it with her, except as she volunteers a right. comment or explanation about readiness. Mm, so fascinating that you get the different perspectives from the different countries. What's uh, What would you say the one common thread is amongst all the places you've been to? You know, amazingly, you know, love of movement, and and it works. Their love of movement, you're saying? Yes, their love of movement is something I I always enjoy, and it's a common thread, and it's all over the world, even in China or places where we think people don't move much or are not expressive. Not true. Once you take the lid off, Mm. there's very emotional and poetic and all kinds of things. So there's that. There's the faith and movement over and over, and especially with trauma. Here's my little pitch about dance therapy, by the way. You know, written lately about traumas in the body and somatic approaches and somatic experiencing. From my point of view, most of that's individual work. So you're working with, you know, mind-body symptoms. Dance therapy can take us into community work. It can scale up much more. It uses, it, it can move into areas of symbolism and depth and emotion that I don't think individual somatic work can. Um, and mostly it can deal with the isolation of trauma. I think you really need to rebuild community, reconnect people who are feeling vulnerable. And, and that's what we do, especially with old folk dances, circle dances. That's what's always been done with folk dance. So I think it's perfect for working. And people cannot talk after being traumatized the way so many people have. Just simply words just don't do it. That's a great pitch. Yeah. Well, I feel it. And I'm on a crusade, actually, to, to bring more of us into the trauma world. I, I, uh, I've been writing about it and present at APA. I, I told you that these... This is coming up at APA this this uh, August, which is I'm, I'm part of a panel on uh, on working with trauma using the arts. You know, APA is still quite conservative, and these are considered very you know woo woo techniques. And 
and get into all those conversations about where's your evidence and what kind of research did you do and how much of it and what are your numbers. So trying to actually, I just submitted an article that uses also arts-based research, quality, you know, trying to make the, the point for alternative research methods too, because if we just stick to the same old evidence base, we just keep getting cognitive behavioral therapy comes out on top using that again, short-term therapies. So, Can you tell us the details about your panel? So it's in San Francisco. It's actually a whole day on August 9th. I think the one on trauma is about 2 in the afternoon. It's at the Moscone Convention Center. All the panels will be. And this one, that um, so there will be some media about it. Uh, there's a man there who's from Walter Reed Hospital and uh, National Endowment for the Arts. So that's exciting because it's a new collaboration with the Art Division, which is Division 10. Humanistic Psychology is 32. And they've been very separated. So uh, this is the first time we're collaborating on programming and mutual support. Yeah. yeah thanks so much for advocating and doing the work that you've been doing and trying to help us integrate. Thank you. Yes, it is my pleasure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this was really nice to to talk to you and hear about the, you know, the work that you've been doing and very real struggles that come along with it or, you know, the ideal versus the real. So that's always validating to hear. All right, everyone, reconnect to your body through dance and movement, July 24th. It's a webinar available to you wherever you are in the world. Come conquer your biggest barrier to moving and dancing more. The link is right on top of the podcast notes and sign up to join me live or receive the recording. Bye.